Money FM 89.3. Best of drive time. It's time now to take a look at headlines out of the United States in our Washington report. Quite a few things to talk about, including uh, some statements coming out of the G7, as well as the all-important U.S. debt ceiling discussion. Online with me is Pushandit, Professor of Economics at NCIAD. Professor, good afternoon. How are you? Very good, thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time to help me out with these uh, issues. I guess uh, to start us off, Professor, let's talk about the G7 summit in Japan. Um, broadly, what are your thoughts on the significance of the event this year? So, if you just step back, you know, just a few years ago, people were questioning the, the very existence of the G7, its usefulness. They said things like the share in world GDP has fallen to below 30%, you know, the rise of India and China, global supply chains in Asia, you know, China's brick and road initiative. But last couple of years, everything changed because Russia invaded Ukraine, the rising tensions between U.S. and China following the trade war, and all this has completely changed the landscape and unified the G7. So these summits are now increasingly important. So in this one, Vladimir Zelensky showed up at the summit. He was flown in by President Macron, and he obtained unconditional support from the G7. Japan is talking about exiting its passive strategy, and even Canada and Europe have become skeptical whether the current international order will persist. So this is not the Yalta conference of 1945, which was about the post-war reorganization of Europe. But these conferences are building up to creating a new world order. Mm. I want to talk about two fronts that the G7 seem to be fighting on, for lack of a better choice of words. One, the issue with regard to uh, Russia and Ukraine, and the other being China and, you know, words like security risks being thrown out. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak from the UK has talked about it as well. Just to start us off with the China situation, talk about de-risking, not decoupling. Could I get your brief thoughts on that, the difference between the two, de-risking and decoupling? So. Yeah, you know, I think we are in the process of decoupling, okay? Mm. But this is not said aloud in polite circles. So they are talking about de-risking and diversifying of supply chains, friend-shoring, near-shoring. But Prime Minister Rishi Sunak put it in very stark zero-sum terms that they are basically engaged in a strategic and concerted economic contest with China and with, yeah. with Ukraine. Yeah. So everyone is now talking about economic coercion, and this is a word which we will see used again and again. Now, China actually wants to maintain economic ties with the European Union, and it's urging that the G7 not fall prey to American economic coercion. Okay, But at the same time, the Chinese themselves are going after U.S. defense companies. They raided the offices of Bain, the consulting firm. They even went after Lotte of South Africa. So the decoupling is actually well underway. I think, you know, this seems quite inexorable and it's going to happen. In the past, businesses were the interest group that actually supported full engagement with China, you know, attracted by its vast markets, the cost efficiencies. But even business leaders have gone silent, which is very worrying. Now they're scrambling to de-risk their operations. So Ford is a good example of that. Apple is moving its production to India. Nike is making lots of efforts to, you know, manage its supply chains. So I think, you know, we are going to, it's going to be called de-risking, but basically this is a slow decoupling. Oh boy, uh, it'll be interesting to see the economic implications moving along, especially with China's push to try and be the top economy in the world. Uh, then we have the issue of sanctions and added pressure on Russia. What are your thoughts with regard to the matter? Is it is it going to be effective enough? You know, there have always been holes in, in the sanctions. Initially, you know, even the IMF predicted that Russian GDP would fall by, you know, double-digit points, but actually Russian GDP barely declined in 2022. 
and this year the IMF is saying that Russian GDP will go up. So the sanctions actually have never been complete. They have never been affected. There are too many loopholes. Now, many analysts feel that the longer the war goes up, the more advantages it is for Russia that they can sort of wait it out. But uh, sanctions start biting harder and harder the longer they're put in place. So, for instance, in Russia, there is a degradation of its uh, of its industry, of its airplanes, of you know the availability of luxury items, maintenance of oil and gas fields. So Russia is, you know, reduced to finding spare parts on black markets from countries under sanctions like Iran. Of course, if I look historically, sanctions have never really succeeded in changing behavior. So this is going to be a long process. But I think my take is that the Europeans and the Americans are increasingly going to sort of stick and gradually escalate the aid and the military aid that they're going to uh, provide to Ukraine. Yeah, F-16s to Ukraine, uh, among some of the headlines you'll see on websites like uh, CNN, for example, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, supposed to meet with Vladimir Zelensky, I believe, yesterday. Some takeaways of these meetings. I mean, Vladimir Zelensky has has really used his media background to his advantage. I mean, he did a, a recent interview with Bear Grylls, uh, which was on uh, HBO, if I'm not wrong, to really give people an insight to the fighting spirit of uh, the people of Ukraine. Ukraine. Your thoughts on his moves so far? So he's been very successful in, in bringing at least the G7 to his side and the mm-hmm. Western alliance to its side. Because keep in mind that even within Europe, there were differences. So the Eastern Europeans were a lot more supportive of Ukraine because they had had experience with the Soviet Union, whereas, you know, Germany had to be, you know, coaxed and cajoled before it, you know, fully threw its support behind Ukraine. Zelensky did meet the U.S. and the U.S. remains Ukraine's biggest supporter. They gave the green light to other countries to transfer F-16s, train their pilots, etc., but I think a much more important meeting that uh, Zelensky had was with Narayan of India, because, you know, in all these UN resolutions, there have been a bunch of countries which are abstaining. It's not a very big number, like 32 countries abstained, but they account for 50% of the world population. So it includes India, China, uh, South Africa, Brazil, etc. So it's important for Zelensky to actually get, you know, at least get these large developing countries and even countries in the Middle East. He went to the Middle East before that. Mm. Uh, now, it's not going to be easy because I think these countries would like to prioritize their national interests, like countries like India and Indonesia and, and things like that. But Zelensky has been effective so far. All right. Uh, I'm on the line right now with Pushandit, Professor of Economics at INSEAD. Let's move on to our next big issue, the U.S. debt ceiling. And we are at another impasse. What needs to happen to push this through? Can we expect anything this week now that uh, President Joe Biden's going back to the United States to sort this out? So basically, they're playing a game of chicken. Like who's <laughs> going to blink first? The U.S. has this kind of an insane policy where... The Congress approves spending and then refuses to approve paying for that spending. So, you know, it can do one or the other, right? And so the Biden administration initially said that they would not negotiate on the debt ceiling. And, uh, you know, they would actually look at some workarounds, like the 14th Amendment has been tossed up in the air and, you know, making a trillion dollar coin. But now they've taken these options off the table. So basically, they've thrown away their leverage. And the talks are failing because the Republicans are continually ratcheting up their demands. So there's a fundamental asymmetry here. I think the Republicans are betting that if they blow up the economy, and I'm talking about the global economy, they think that the Biden administration 
will take the brunt of the blame. And they might be right. Voters are not interested in process questions. Mm. Right? They, are, they are interested in outcomes. They look at the pension funds. They look at you know, unemployment rates. They look at inflation. Yeah. The House representatives, on the other hand, fight elections on local concerns. So they're gambling that they will pay less of a cost. Of course, that means that all of us will pay a massive cost mm. if you know, they refuse to uh, reach an agreement. I guess it's easier said than done, Professor, when I use the terms, let's not be naive to this, because these delays have been a historical problem. Market volatility is surely something to continue to expect. Yeah, exactly. So, and I don't think it's it's just volatility. It would, I think it would be a catastrophe. Oh, uh, Janet Yellen has already warned that it would uh, crack open the foundations of our financial system. So Modi's just came out with an estimate that 8 million jobs would be lost. You know, mortgage rates would skyrocket. You know, your and my interest rates on, on Singapore mortgages yeah. would actually go up. So the thing that I'm really watching in terms of the money markets, okay, money markets hold a lot of treasury bills. And if the U.S. defaults, then they, then they suddenly have treasury bills which are not worth what they're supposed to be worth. Okay. And their balance sheets then start taking a hit, whether it's a bank, and in money markets, and at some point, these markets stop working, and then we're going to have a full-fledged financial crisis. Again, it's not just money markets in the U.S. or banks in the U.S. The Monetary Authority of Singapore holds lots of U.S. treasuries. Mm. So, you know, and if the U.S. continually does this, I think what it will also do in the medium to long term is it will undermine the faith that people have in the U.S. and its institutions and in the treasury market. Mm, Certainly the wider implications there, Professor. I suppose uh, for those of us observing on the outside, would you consider Memorial Day, May the 29th, to be more of a deadline instead of June the 1st, especially when you consider May 29th, it's a Monday, it's going to be a market holiday. The hope is to get it sorted before the 29th? I hope so, but you know, if, uh, <laughs> it's a Hollywood you know, movie. Market, yeah, it's, exactly. So it's a disaster in slow motion. We know that you know if there is no agreement, the disaster will happen, but we really don't know when. So it's a little bit like bank panics and bank runs, right? Okay. Are, these are driven by human emotions, panic, collapse of confidence, inevitably, but they happen unpredictably. So I don't think we can forecast the day of reckoning. But ironically, if the markets actually start giving off really bad signals, then it's likely to make an agreement more likely. All right. I've been speaking with Hushan Dit, who is Professor of Economics at NCIAT. Professor, I appreciate your time as always. Take care and have a great Monday evening. You too. Thank you. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.